0: Good morning, Bethany. I am going to give you a moment to turn to Genesis 30, and we're going to begin at um, verse 25, and we're going through chapter 31, verse 18. Which I'll give you a second. Okay. As soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your livestock has fared with me for you had little before i came and it has increased abundantly and the lord has blessed you wherever i turned but now but now when shall i provide for my own household also he said what shall i give you jacob said you shall not give me anything <clears throat> if you will do this for me i will again pasture your flock and keep it let me pass through all your flock today Removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep, and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later, when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats, and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in in charge of his sons. As he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plain trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places, where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks towards the stripes and all the black in the flocks of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in in the dream, Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan, to his father Isaac, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Be to God. That
1: a mouthful. <laughs> Pam said that was a mouthful. Yeah, it was. I'm about to give you a mouthful too. <laughs> well, I, I promise it's not a sermon on animal husbandry today, or how to uh, work with sheep. You want to do that? You got to find Kara and ask her. She works with sheep a lot, um, but there's a lot in there on sheep, isn't it? What a weird passage and these stories, they're just so fascinating. And you're probably every week going like, what are we going to do with this thing? I ask myself that too every week as well. (laughs) As I get ready for these Sundays, we pray for us. Lord, open your word. We need your guidance. We need spirit you to prick our hearts, soften our hearts. You know where each and every one of us has come from this week. You know how this needs to be applied to each and every one of us. So do the work only you can do, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, in the middle of the 20th century, female champion swimmer Florence Chadwick wanted to be the first woman to swim from Catalina Island to the mainland of California in those shark-infested cold waters. Anybody want to take that, uh, sh- uh, that uh, you know, go try to do that? in No way. She set out on a foggy, cold day, surrounded by a few boats. One of the boats contained her mother. Her mom was in one of the boats. Uh, Florence, she was already an amazing, accomplished, experienced swimmer, and she'd swam the English Channel and a few other uh, large bodies of water by that time. But it was the conditions on that day and, and Florence's own actions that led to an absolutely fascinating story, that after swimming for 15 hours, they pulled her from the water half a mile from shore, from the finish line. What happened? This arduous, long journey from one shore to another. Why didn't she make it on that day? She'd, she'd done other hard swims, and she'd already accomplished so much. We'll come back to Florence. Keep her in your mind. But first to Jacob. Jacob sets out today with his own family on a different kind of long journey from one shore to another, from one home to another, on an exodus of sorts. Jacob's finally being sent home by God after 20 years, 20 years now, and with four wives and 11 or 12 children. But it's not before a final showdown with his arch-nemesis Laban. So this morning, we're going to look at the spiritual growth that accompanied both the family and the prosperity growth as well for Jacob and Rachel and Leah. And the lesson we're going to see is one that Jacob learned from Romans eleven thirty six: 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things, all things, everything in your life. To him be glory forever. Amen, Paul wrote in Romans 11. And we have to this morning keep our eyes on that very truth right there. That very truth that all things in your life have come from God. And we have to constantly turn our eyes off of ourselves and to Jesus this morning. So let's see this together. We're going to talk a lot about vision and sight today by looking at three sections of another, as I said, really strange story, isn't it? What's up with the sticks and peeling off the bark? from this, the lives of, of God's chosen family. So hopefully you've got your outline there. Grab it, get it open. Jot down some notes and some fill-ins and have your text open as well. Let's begin by looking at the fact first that God has not given up on this crazy family. That God is committed to his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember what the covenant was? Let's just revisit it to refresh our memory. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation. And I'll bless you and make your name great, so that you'll be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this goes to Abraham, to Isaac, his son, and then to Jacob, Isaac's son. And the Hebrews said they all lived in tents together in this strange land. And But for Jacob, even after stealing the birthright, stealing the blessing, these messy marriages we've gone through, wives selling secret love potions that Pastor David covered for us so well last week, God's still committed to this family, and he blesses them to be a blessing to the world, going all the way back to his promises to Abraham. Blessing comes because of who God is and his commitment to us we're going to see Not because we're brighter, not because we're smarter, not because we're more deserving, but because of who God is. So let's look at that from the story with our first section. Blessings come to God's people and through God's people. To God's people and through God's people. We're going to see that in this story first off this morning. So here Jacob is in exile From his homeland, you remember he was sent away, he was exiled in fear for his life. Do you remember that part of the story? He had stolen so much from his brother Esau. Esau wanted him dead, and so he feared for his life. But in the subsequent 14 years when he worked for Laban, he was blessed and he increased in family. Lots of children, multiple wives, we talked about that. But still, no prosperity according to the promises of of land or just general prosperity that God gave even back to his father, Abraham. So today we're gonna look at the prosperity of the material things in, in Jacob's life, but actually it started coming through Jacob first to Laban as he worked for him and cared for his flock. So let's look at a turning point in this story. It's a new era. It's a new chapter is beginning in the lives of God's people here. We begin this story right as, as Joseph was born, as the last chapter finished up. So this is 14 years into Jacob's indentured servitude to his father-in-law Laban. And in today's timeline, what we actually, what Pam read to us, actually covers another six-year period. So compressed history here. So this takes us to the 20-year mark, 20 years where Jacob was with Laban. Where you heard at the end of the story, he flees. We'll cover that next week. But it's clear from these opening verses that a new chapter is starting when Jacob basically says, I need to go home, Laban. I gotta get home. I've been here 14 years with you. I think I've paid my dues. I've got a family now. I've got a home country I need to go back to. I've served you well, and you know it, Laban. Send me on my way, which would have been according to tradition. Give me my wives and my children and let me get out of here. It's a little firm, a little forward, but it is according to tradition. And remember all these promises God had made to him. I'll be with you. I'll complete what I've started. I promise you'll go back to the promised land. And so for the first time now in the history of all Genesis we've been going through, we're thinking, wow, okay, he's got a lot of kids. Maybe a nation is going to come from these people. Maybe God is going to do something for this group of people. It's like a turning point we're meant to see here. There's so much anticipation in these verses. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me on my way to my home and country. God's program, we we read that and think, it's going to kick into gear now. Things are really going to get going. And what we have here is more of these early chapters They're going to take us to a new chapter, the new covenant of Christ. We see motion and action and a family ready to go back to the promised land. There's so much hope. Is God really going to bring the serpent crusher to this family? Are they really going to become a nation, a people? But not so fast. Not quite yet. Let's look at this new agreement. Yes, it's a new chapter. But six more years have to take place. It's a long time. This new agreement, it was based on the understanding that both Laban and Jacob had that Yahweh, the God of Jacob, Yahweh had brought blessing upon Laban, his father-in-law, through Jacob. He was like the medium through which this blessing came. In a bizarre revelation where he says, I divined it, not quite sure how. In a moment of kind of groveling, he's flattering Jacob when he speaks in this language, he says to, to Jacob, Please, if you favor me at all, I know Yahweh has blessed me because you are here. So, so please don't go, Jacob. What do you want? I'll give you anything. Just name your price. Name your price and, and hang around a bit longer because I know I've gotten tons of stuff from youth because of Yahweh. Laban's not a man of faith. It's, he's not showing here that he's a Yahweh believer, but he's more interested in money. And through some strange divination, as I said, how bizarre, we don't quite know what that means, he's concluded that Yahweh's really blessing Jacob. And he can't let his golden goose go, right? He's got him. He can't let this golden ticket get away. But Jacob knows the blessing is, is ultimately not from him, but from God's blessing upon him, as we read in that Romans verse right at the very beginning. Look at verses 29 and 30 uh, with me. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I've served you and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And Yahweh the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? So Jacob knows it's from God. Wherever I've turned, because of God, through me, you've received so much blessing. And Jacob makes the suggestion here in this strange agreement, Look, Laban, let me take the spotted sheep and goats and you keep the unblemished ones and and that'll be our deal. And I'll separate them today, but then I'll care for your flock a bit longer. This was a plan that was really risky for Jacob and a great deal for Laban. It's no wonder he responds, great, let's do it, Jacob. That sounds pretty good to me. The spotted animals would have been much more rare than the the single-colored, monocolored animals. They're not going to produce that many spotted animals, so Laban would have lost just a little bit. And yet now he still would have had the blessing of having the golden goose around and take care of his flock. Jacob's got to be trusting God here because it's not a very good deal for him that the blessing would still come that God still had a way to keep his promises. And this is what it means for you and I, is that at God's people, we don't have to frantically work to always have the upper hand in our relationships. I know so much of life is about that, frantically working to manipulate others to secure their indebtedness or to not be indebted to them. Much of how we act in our most intimate relationships is a scale of, well, how much have I done for you? And how much have you done for me? In the church, this comes out most obvious with givers. You know, one of the hardest things to do in church life is to give to a giver. Do you know that? That's one of the hardest things to do, to give to a giver. I know so many of us in this room are so gracious and giving and so prone to want to help others. And rightfully, we should. That's part of the call in the body. Christ has given so much to us, so we give to others. But how many times I've seen or you've seen in the church, when it comes time for the giver to receive help, we're so tempted to say, I- I- I'm fine. I- I'm okay. I-, I couldn't ask for your help. We're okay. We'll, we'll be just- we're just fine. We're okay. Don't worry about it. It's the hardest thing to give to a giver. What's going on there? When you give, 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 you know what happens? You're not indebted to anyone. You just, you're not indebted. Sometimes our giving can be a means of keeping everyone else at arm's length. I've done my giving. But here we have Jacob who's now, he's freed from indebtedness and he's still placing himself into the hands of, of, of Laban. Jacob's beginning to see his security was in God not in his stuff, not in his scheming. Whatever good that would come to him would be from God's hands. In fact, he owed everything in his life to everyone else, actually, but in particular to God who has blessed him. Again, remember, for from him and through him and to him are all things in your life, everything. To him be glory, Paul writes but he's not all the way there yet. Remember, he's a work in process, as we all are. Two steps forward, two back, three forward, 20 back sometimes. Do you feel like that in your life sometimes? It's a process. Our life of faith is, is a marathon, not a sprint. It's a marathon. And Jacob is taking steps forward and steps back. He's trusting God more, but he's not all the way there yet. So let's look at our second section together. God keeps his promises despite more schemes. More planning, more more finagling, more sleight of hand and shifting. Man, Laban is a scoundrel, isn't he? (laughs) Laban is a scoundrel. What did he do in the story? Did you catch it there? He beats Jacob to the flock after the deal, takes out all the multicolored animals and sends them with his sons, get them out of here, get three days away from here, far enough to where Jacob's probably not going to make the journey. Get these animals out of here, because Jacob's going to come and try to take them for himself. Can you imagine? I mean, that's his father-in-law. He's, uh, you know, it's it's the father to his grandchildren. And he goes real quickly and hides the spotted sheep. So Jacob uses a really weird, kind of superstitious belief uh, of his day. Uh, This is not something still practiced today. He needed, though, fertility for the spotted sheep. He needed there to be birthed spotted sheep and lambs. That was the part of the deal. And he thought, you know, God's promised me prosperity, so we better get to work here. What are we going to do? So much like Rachel, remember last week, who wanted to purchase mandrakes from Leah, Because she thought they were an aphrodisiac? Jacob followed the superstitious belief of his day uh, that uh, that was thought to influence sheep by mating. And here's what it is. It was this idea that in the moment of mating or conception for sheep, I know it sounds weird, but just go with me here. (laughs) Whatever they were looking at, if it was a vivid sight or something they were looking at, in conception, it could influence the embryo somehow and that's it. You're like, more? So the thought was that by looking at striped sticks, maybe spotted sheep would come out. I know it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But if you think about it, how many pregnant women change their habits so as not to cause stress on a baby? And we do those kind of things, not like that today. But there are connections and thoughts between maybe what a mother takes in, maybe what she experiences, stress levels, you know, that would influence the embryo and the baby. But he also shrewdly does something that we can't understand. He breeds the stronger sheep with his own and the weak with Laban's. Therefore, obviously, kind of getting the the prime, pristine flock. But this is not how he ends up with so many sheep. It's not because of this. No, God did this. And Jacob actually will admit it later, It really had nothing to do with the trees and the stripes and his work. And he admits it. We'll see it. But his actions here, I think, still display a lack of trust. Kind of like Rachel, sell me those mandrakes, Leah. Taking matters into his own hands. His actions are not compatible with his belief that God would be the true source of all blessings. If Laban schemes, I will too. What's he doing? He's fighting fire with fire. It's our sub-point there. Don't fight fire with fire. A Christian is not called to do that. And here he's thinking, well, Laban's at his tricks again. Let me see what I can pull out of my sleeve too. Don't fight fire with fire. But this is the way of the world right now. This is absolutely the way of the world. When you're faced with a Laban now in our world, it's all about the mic drop in our day and age. You know what I mean by that? You say it, and you're like, boom, you drop the mic off the stage. You've scored the, the, uh, the overwhelming point, defeated the enemy. Yeah, look at this. Boom, mic drop, right? When you're faced with a Laban in our day and age, it's about scoring points, winning arguments, lobbing grenades into the enemy camp. That's the way of the world. When you're faced with a laban, is your temptation to fight fire with fire? Well, hey, you're going to air your grievances? I'm going to air mine. You're going to battle for this? I'm going to battle for that. You're going to lead with emotional outrage? Well, guess what? I'm going to lead with mine. Haven't you seen that? I mean, that's our world right now. Fight fire with fire. And what is sad and what's challenging and what's hard for each and every one of us is that even as Christians, we've picked up on how the culture fights their battles, fights their labans. And we've adapted to it and adopted it. I was talking to a friend who works for a company in HR and he was talking to me about their their hiring for a new marketing position. And he said to me, that they had a candidate who looked really great on the resume. Um, You know, the resume came in, it looked really good, so the standard practice was that he would send this this candidate uh, a a a few follow-up questions to get a better feel of the candidate. Pretty standard practice, right, for kind of a, a company. Well, the candidate responded to my friend, and he essentially said this, hey, I'm a professional writer, I write for money. I'll not answer your questions, Well, it will take me an hour to write. It will take you five minutes to read. It's not fair, and I want a fair interview. My friend was like, whoa, okay. His temptation was to fire right back. His temptation was to fire right back. You know, and what was interesting, though, is in this professional writer, in their little response, they had misspelled interview. (laughs) And my friend wanted to fire right back. Yeah, but you misspelled interview. (laughs) His temptation was to fire back. He wanted to shoot that email off. But that wouldn't have been right. Representing the company. But that's our temptation, to fight back, to fire back, to fight fire with fire with the same vitriol and attitude. I know it's tempting. I'm tempted to do that. Sometimes I give into to it even. How often maybe in a marriage, when your spouse confronts you over something, do you respond with, yeah, but you did this. Or remember, you did the same thing to me two weeks ago. Rather than, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. We fight fire with fire. As Jacob was doing with Laban. Even in the church. But not just as individuals in the church. The church has taken on the same tone in some places and battle and cry and sounds in many ways just like the culture and how we fight our battles with the surrounding culture, which which in many ways is, is kind of a laban to the church. We act and speak before we remind ourselves that God will keep his promises to the church no matter what it looks like, regardless of what's going on right now. Regardless of what it looks like, he will. And it's not worth it to win the small battle if we give up our credibility as witnesses for Christ in the process. It's not worth it. We need to hear this today. The call is not to fight fire with fire. As Jacob did with his father-in-law. Here's our answer. Acknowledge God is the source of all things, as we saw in Romans 11, and then live in compatibility with that. Live in compatibility with that very thing, that God is the source of everything. Now, I'm not saying we're to be passive people. That's not our call in the church. Salt and light is very salty and very bright, right? We're not called to be passive by any means, We're not called to be people who get walked over. Or people that don't engage the surrounding world and culture and our neighbors. Not at all. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is that if we begin. Confrontations. if we begin disagreements with Laban's in our life by starting at the point of acknowledging God as the author and giver of all things and all success and all victories and he'll never forsake his promises, if we begin there and acknowledge that our own limited efforts actually never really accomplish that much even as as it was in Jacob's case of prosperity, then what will happen? Our actions will line up with that first principle truth as we reorient our hearts to God's hand, to God's plan, to God's work, to God's promises. We start there. It changes the way we go about confrontation with Laban's in our own life, starting and seeing that God is the source of all things, And for us, that's the gospel. For us, that is the gospel. All your victories have been fought for you in Christ and given to you. If God promises to bless his people, even if they face the opposition of a Laban, guess what? Nothing can get in his way. Nothing can get in his way of working in your life or working in the face of a Laban. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ for a moment. Think about that. His enemies, his Labans, murdered him. But yet it was through that death that we won. Nothing can stop God's plan if if he's committed to blessing a life. We're going to look at Joseph in the new year. Sold into slavery, maybe you know the story. By his own brothers, a bunch of Labans. But what does he say to them years later? He's got a different perspective on it. Yeah, you you guys, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You guys, you meant it for evil. What, the evil? God used even the evil for good? You meant evil. God meant good. Do you see that? Jacob's learning this. We have to learn this. He's beginning to finally see this, that despite his best effort, his worst effort, his best schemes, his worst schemes, his faithfulness and his unfaithfulness, that God was a promise-keeping God. The character of God is what he began to learn and what mattered to him, and a God of grace, a God of grace. And God doesn't need, didn't need Jacob to sin or selfishly take matters into his own hands to accomplish that blessing. time and time again, that, like that horrible uh, uh, aphorism that we have, God helps those who help themselves? No. It's all of grace. All of it. Jacob had to trust and obey. Trust and obey. And that's our final, final section today. God calls his people out, as he did Jacob, to look away from their own chronic self-sufficiency and look to his. His own chronic self-sufficiency and and look to his. We transition to chapter 31 where Jacob, I believe, actually has one of his most shining moments. He needs one, doesn't he? (laughs) This guy needs a shining moment. He needs a victory. He needs something to kind of Show us his character. So, as we transition, we look at this moment. He's been blessed with family now, right? With children, and now with extreme wealth, actually. So, over the six years, which now makes 20, 20 years, he has been with Laban. He now has a big family. And he's now got tons of wealth. Even as you saw at the end, they rode on camels away. That's not very common. You think, well, they all had camels back then. No, they didn't all have camels back then. That's to show us that this man left rich, wealthy, prosperous. But they're tired of him now. His father-in-law is tired of him now. Laban does not look on him with favor anymore, the Scripture says. He's tired of him. It's like, I'm done with this guy. Look at what's going on here. Now he's increasing and I'm not? Laban doesn't look on him with favor anymore, but here's the thing. God sees Jacob. How many times do we see in Scripture, but God saw his people. God saw her suffering. God saw his child. It's all over Scripture. doesn't mean that there was a time when God didn't see, right? Or that he forgot something or doesn't have the full picture. He has the full picture of everything all the time right in front of him. But it's a signal to us to show that He's about to do something incredible for his people. God sees Jacob and his family. He sees how they're being treated. He sees that their own father-in-law, their own father, their own grandfather is, is, is turning his face against them and he appears to Jacob in his second dream. Like the first one, remember, the giant magnificent staircase with all the angels ascending and descending on it, showing him how intimately involved God hovered over Jacob's life and yours too. Another vision comes, A dream. And he recounts it to his wives out in the field. He does an incredible thing in this speech that he gives in 31. He reflects on who God is, and then he acts. He reflects on the promises, like we do with the gospel so much here at Bethany Church, and then in light of that, he acts. What if you only do one or the other? You only reflect and never act. Or you're just a person of action who never does much reflecting. That's a problem. You're going to talk about that in your growth groups this week. But he does both. He reflects and acts. Look, he says to his wife, this this isn't our home anymore. We have got to get out of here. And you know what? God appeared to me actually in a dream and said this, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you the whole way. And his speech goes on. The God of my father's face is is, is with us, is with me. Even if Laban, even if your dad's face is turned against us now, we have God for us. So who can be against us? He goes on, God's prevented him from harming us too. And God has taken away, taken it, the livestock of Laban. And he's given it to me, to us, Rachel and Leah. He asked me just, just to look to him, to look at him. Look at what he's doing to look away from my, my own chronic self-sufficiency, which Rachel and Leah, you both know, has gotten us into a lot of trouble, hasn't it? They go like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and trust his sufficiency. And you know what? Rachel and Leah have a shining moment here too. They agree. They agree with him. Look at verses uh, 15 and 16 of 31. Uh, we'll, go, we'll go to 14 through 16. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion of inheritance left to us in our father's house? And are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he's devoured our money. All the wealth God has taken away. There's that word again. He's taken it away. God's done it. From our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, you know what, Jacob? Whatever God has said to you, let's just do it. Let's just do it. Here's what we're meant to see. God is about to, he is getting ready to take this family on a micro-exodus. A micro-exodus from plunder to freedom. What do I mean by micro-exodus? What do I mean by that? Well, this word here that Jacob used and Rachel and Leah used, they this, said this, God has taken away, taken away the wealth and given it to us is really the same word that really means plundered. Laban's wealth, they've plundered. God has plundered Laban's wealth and given it to this family and now they're going to go out on a journey. Do you know what it points us to? It points us to the pattern of Exodus, the book of Exodus, and the real exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt. It's a micro exodus here. Do you know what happened at the end of that story? God says, get out, go to the promised land, I'll be with you. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they left, that they left them. I have that right? I don't. Okay, so that the Lord had given the people favor. I'll just look it up. I got the wrong verse up there. Exodus 12, 36 says this, and the Lord has given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they left them have what they asked. My Bible has the wrong thing too. That's really weird. Anyways, they plundered the Egyptians. That's the word. They plundered the Egyptians. Do you see the pattern here? First, Abraham is called out, out of his land to leave his family and to go to the promised land. Then Jacob is exiled out of his homeland. And now he's multiplied in wealth and his family's called back to it. And just so the Israelites years later multiply too in family, and slavery in Egypt, and then they plunder them or God plunders them on the way out as the Egyptians basically handed gold to the Israelites as they left. They gave them gold on the way out. See the pattern. A micro exodus here, a pattern from from plunder to freedom. And this is God's pattern over and over again with his people. An exodus. Here's the pattern. His people become chronically self-sufficient. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, the Israelites in slavery. They become chronically self-sufficient. And then he calls them out to an exodus. He calls them back to himself and his sufficiency for you. It's all over the Bible. From slavery to freedom. From nothing to blessing. And I believe, I believe we are in another day of exodus for the church. I believe we're in another moment of exodus. Or maybe just on the front end of it. And I'm not the only Christian who believes that. I was reading this author, Paul Kingsnorth, this week in his blog, and he talks about the entire West being in an exodus. Listen to his quote and some of the things he says. The West as a whole, that's the Americas and Europe, uh, we're in our very own exodus. We've left our culture behind, and we're wandering in the desert, tempted by strange gods, believing and then not believing, hungering and angering somewhere we think there may be a promised land but for now we're walking in circles we're not sure how to follow or whether to follow anyone actually which prophets are real and which are false the desert's the space between kingdoms he goes on the gap between worlds it's a liminal land the desert is the place that people must go sometimes when its stories have died or when it has escaped from something that is hemmed it in. It's a hard place. You can only take with you what you need, and any excess will be burned away. You go to the desert to lose what you do not need to carry. You go to the desert to fast and become new so that you can enter whatever land you're brought to when the time comes. My friends, many of our stories are dying a lot of what we've held on to as our kingdom is turning out to not be very stable. A lot of what we thought even was at least neutral ground is turning out to be hostile ground, isn't it? Do you feel that? But guess what? The desert can actually be a fantastic place. The desert can be a life changing place because God has always called his people out to the desert. He's always called them out to the exodus, out to the desert to reboot, to recharge, to transform. It's the place where you can't take any excess, you got to let a lot of it go. You can only take what you need. But it is a vulnerable place, isn't it? It's a really vulnerable place to go out to the desert. Because you have to leave a lot behind. You have to leave your self-sufficiency. You have to leave your security behind. You have to go to vulnerable places. It's like coming to the gospel for the first time. You have to say, I'm not sufficient, only he is. But we have to see that as God asked Jacob to go out, go to the desert, be okay between point A and point B without much there because I'll be with you. You have to look And see me and trust me in the desert. We have to rethink our hold on this kingdom, this world, this culture. I even think God's asking with nation too. The church is in the desert right now, or we're on the doorstep. Who are we? Will God be with us when neutral territory feels more hostile than it ever did before? Will he keep his promises to us? It's going to be vulnerable. But I think it's a journey God is taking the church on, his people. And he's even doing some purifying in his church and asking us, okay, what are you really about, my people? What are you really passionate about? What is the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning? What is the thing that makes your heart tick? What is the thing that brings you back to this group Sunday after Sunday? What is it, my people? In the desert, you'll find out. God is asking us to walk through some places of doubt, as I said, vulnerable places in the desert between two homes. But you know what those places are? Places where we need each other. We need each other. And we need God because you have to see through that sandstorm in the desert, don't you? Or for Florence, it was the fog. What happened to her? What happened to Florence Chadwick when she was on her own? She was on an exodus. She was. She was on an exodus between two shores. 15 hours into that swim, do you remember, from Catalina to California? And the day was so foggy, she could hardly see the boats even that were with her right next to her in the water. It was that foggy. And after that 15 hours, she begged to be pulled from the water. And her mom, I remember I said she was in one of the boats, looked down at her and said, you are so close. Keep going. You just can't see it. You're so close. Keep going but she couldn't see the shore because of the fog. And she was so at this, by this time so mentally and physically exhausted, she demanded to be pulled out of the water, and as I said, less than a half mile from shore. Later she said these words, I mean, if I could have seen through the fog, if I could have seen the shore, I think I would have made it. What we need. That's what you have in the elements in your hand. That's what we have at the Lord's Supper table. It's our final thing. We've got to lift our eyes to the Lord's table, which means lift our eyes to what Christ has done for you. Do you know Jesus has accomplished for us the greater exodus, the greatest exodus? Do you know that? He is the shore. He is the place. He's our home. He's the resting harbor of our life. He's plundered the enemy, Satan, hasn't he? Plundered him. And he's delivered us and defeated our enemies of sin and death. And now we are exiled to the sinful world. And now he's calling us to live as exiles with our eyes on the shore to come. Do you have your eyes there? You feel like you're in a fog or a sandstorm. This is what communion's about. Refixing our eyes on that far shore. Refixing our eyes on that greater exodus to come that we're in the middle of right now. In fact, don't you remember? He too was called out of Egypt, wasn't he? He too fulfilled the greater exodus. Now that doesn't mean we abandon this world. It doesn't mean that. No, in fact, it means right now you and I should live as citizens of the world to come in this dying world, amongst this dying world, loving, serving, sharing, helping, obeying, sacrificing, all while walking in the desert. Because guess what? We're the only ones that have our eyes on the far shore. We're the only ones who see the safe harbor of Christ on the other side. And so many need it. They're like Florence on the 15th mile and I can't see where they're going. It's too foggy. Salt and light, remember? Light. <laughs> that's what the table represents. The exodus that was in embryonic form in Abraham's life, in Jacob's life, in the Israelites in exodus is now fully seen in the exodus Jesus purchased for us with his body and blood. And that's what the elements are about that you hold. turns me to 1 Peter 2 to prepare our souls for communion. 1 Peter 2 It's a great passage that speaks in exodus type language. It speaks of us as exiles, of desert wanderers, of sojourners. But not in the sense of, hey, you might as well just get out of here and ignore the world. You're, you know, you're, get out of here. You're from a different world. No. Yes, we are uh, exiled sojourners, but also it tells us then how to live in the world in light of this. 1 Peter 2, I'm going to read 9 through 17. It's the great Exodus passage. But you, that's you. You're a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's our exodus. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you'd not receive mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, as people 15 miles from one shore to the other, right? To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Remember, it's for his sake. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That's a strange, weird, exile, sojourner, other kingdom on our exodus in the desert way of living. And for each and every one of us, at some place, it strikes us as impossible to do. Except for this. Because he went before us and did it. The great exodus. His body, his blood, to take us from one kingdom to that far shore. Take a moment and dwell over those words. Dwell over our call to follow Christ where he takes us, even if it feels like a desert, and seek his strength, and we'll take in a moment as the worship band comes up to get ready.